and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened, where we discuss, explore, and connect with fellow empaths, healers, intuitives, and seekers. Hello, empaths. We hope you're having a beautiful week. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. We're going to be talking about death and near-death experiences and what it means to be a man and an empath and an intuitive. Well, at least we hope to cover all those topics in our time together. You know, Mark Twain famously said that the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. And even though we know this is true, that death is patiently waiting for us all at the end of our final chapter, there's still so much fear and uncertainty around this topic. So today we're going to be talking about this and so much more with our guest, Jacob Cooper. He's the best-selling author of Life After Breath and The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. He's also a sought-after speaker on grief, wisdom, and consciousness, offering meditation and mindfulness seminars to help others find purpose and overcome fears of life after death. As a clinical social worker, Reiki master, and certified hypnotherapist specializing in past life regression, Jacob uses his extensive personal and professional experience to empower one soul at a time. And he also hosts the weekly podcast, The Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much, Samantha. An honor to be your guest here today. Can you start off by just telling listeners how you came to all of this work that you're doing, starting with your near-death experience as a child? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place to start, Samantha. But my near-death experience, I'm celebrating the 30th anniversary. Um, it happened, you know, actually in September of 1993. So to give my age, I'm 33 years old, but my NDE happened at just the young age of three years old. I At the time, I had what's called pertussis, otherwise commonly known as whooping cough. And I went to a playground with family friends that day, climbed up onto a ladder going up onto a slide and I just began to suffocate one rung at a time. And once I got to the top, I just completely suffocated due to pertussis and there was nothing to hold on to. I was completely um, suffocated. And, you know, if you're a homeowner, it's kind of like you go into a basement and you switch one unit at a time in your power breaker. And that was going on within my body to the deprivation of oxygen. You know, then I felt my brain literally deprived of oxygen and just snap in half as if, you know, your life is plugged into a wall and just take that plug out. And all of a sudden I had a lot of the uh, classic references of near-death experiences where I entered a tunnel, I accelerated to an insane speed. There was an endless degree of euphoric feelings that I was experiencing. There was no time. And I was open to what was always inside of myself and each one of our listeners that sometimes we forget about. We we have so much force and power and support uh, from our connectivity to loved ones on the other side and our spirit guides, our guardian angels. And so this was a full uh, throttle panoramic uh, engagement and viewpoint of all that's around us, you know, without any human barriers. And so, um, this experience allowed myself to meet my guardian angels. I was able to see angels all around myself at the playground. I was aware of God, you know, and God to myself is the centerpiece of where of all of life was from at its core, from a pure, loving, euphoric, timeless place in which everything, you know, is the epicenter from at its core. Um, you know, and I met my soul family members 
and I was posed a question as to what will I do, you know, in terms of staying or going, uh, staying on the other side or continuing to live the life that I was that I was on, that I was embarking. And I was able to see previous lifetimes that I led in one particular lifetime was very much intertwined with my NDE, uh, but I also saw premonitions of the life that I would be living and the people that I would be engaging with and talking in front of. And, you know, I obviously chose to stay because I'm here today uh, with a lot of profound memories that uh, never left my mind or my heart uh, were always with me, you know, each part of my journey. So that's the, you know, kind of like a bridged version of my NDE, obviously, I've written two books about it and talk, you know, internationally about it. But I, I think there's a lot to it to to unfold, certainly. Love that in the sense that it showcases how cognizant little people really are, that you had that experience so deeply at three years old. It, there's an ageless wisdom to what you just shared that allows you to have that recall and that that sense of self that I think sometimes we forget how aware our little people really are. So do you feel that that shaped you into wanting to become a social worker? It shaped all things that I do in life. I mean, what I'll, what I'll say is this. When I was suffocating, I lost my human breath. And I was in a place of just kind of torture. Where I wasn't like fully crossed over, but I was just in this place of suffering that felt like an eternity. But once I surrendered to another force that no, I call the breath of eternity or God, it was when I continued. And I come from the Jewish faith and the word for spirit is ruach, which translates the breath of the wind of God. And that was an influence in my first title of my book, Life After Breath. But you know, really, it's to answer your question, what influenced my career path was understanding what God-like was and the embodiment of God, which was to give over life or breath to others when they feel out of sorts, you know, that's the embodiment of it. And so through a lot of my workshops, literally helping people regain their breath or, you know, doing counseling sessions where people are feeling just totally out of sorts and like they're drowning, there's nothing to hold on to. Um, you know, understanding the value of surrender, which is something that I first started on and working in the field and working with addiction, um, you know, people who had, you know, various sub, you know, chemical dependencies and stuff like that, and just the value of surrendering to a higher power and all of the wisdom of AA that I was, you know, first started with in my career trajectory. So I think life, I think to give, we need to be able to take, but, you know, some people have more emphasis on the taking and giving for me. I take so I should, so I could give over to others in this experience. I took it so I could give it over to others. How did your family respond when you were processing these huge things at such a young age, were they accepting of that? Were they like, Oh, Jacob, that's, that's a great story. Now go eat your snack. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. I, I, you know, here's what I'll say. I kept this very close to my heart, which is very common for near death experiences, a lot more common than you think, particularly children. You know, for instance, I just had a conversation with Lorna Byrne who communicated with angels as a young kid. And she, like myself, was was kind of told, "Hey, don't go around telling people it's not your it's not the time as a kid to do it because people will judge, people will put down an experience, and eventually that experience will just kind of die out because you'll be so disempowered." Uh, but I I'm learning a lot more about my near death experience. I come from a lineage of three different uh, social workers, and my father is also a therapist, and so he 
told me after I had my NDE, like a little bit afterwards, and I'm just using my words right now, my vernacular, but something along the lines that I came up to him and I said, hey, dad, you know, something, you know, happened that day when I was rushed by the ambulance to the hospital. It's not going to make sense to you what happened to me, but one day you'll understand. And that gave me everything that I needed to know, like all the validation. But essentially, you know, there's no words to really describe NDEs. I don't do it because it's justified. Uh, but I do it because I understand my NDE wasn't about me. It was about other people, you know, to really hear this message. I think that's what all NDEs are about. It's has something to do with karma, I believe, and we could get into maybe some of that. But really, life is not about you. It, it's it's about other people in many ways and the ripple effect that you have. And the fact that you had the support of your, of your dad and your family right. and that it wasn't because I've seen, um, I worked in the education system for many years and would often see things that children would say discounted or you're making that up or because right. people couldn't see beyond their own perception of, of what someone else's reality might be. And I think that's a lot of, that seems to be a thread in all of your work is bringing together that unity of us as human beings that we're all going to have a different experience while we're here, but there are commonalities in um when we get on the other side there there is something waiting for us and i think that's part of your work as well is helping people face that there's more yeah well and also remembering who you are you know i think in the way my experience hopefully could empower other people to remind themselves that they're not these blank canvases i mean when you get to this planet you're very disempowered and you're taught to push away everything and regurgitation is a lot more important and significant than imagination. Um, and so you're, you're basically, a lot of people inherit the way that others will see them as these blank canvases and they're having the whole world put their identity, you know, on them. And that's their, that's their worldviews. And so uh, it's very important for kids to remember who they are because they're coming with a lot more clarity from the other side. Uh, but sometimes we look at the body and we look at it as, as congruent with one's level of awareness. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, kids are a lot more aware than some people who have been here on the earth plane for a lot longer. So how we look at chronological age is different than the soul memory and the soul age. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are old chronologically, but spiritually, they present as quite youthful. And people who are very young chronologically who present with wisdom and spirituality uh, that's quite old. And so just because it's not articulated on an external level, doesn't mean that there's a whole other reality that someone's tapping into. Um, and so I, I take an example, it's like, you can have a very advanced guitar player, but it takes time to get used to the notes, the instrument of a new brand new guitar. And so I think the same thing, the soul and body takes time for the two to be in unison, to be able to use that instrument um, and to be just in harmonization with it. So that takes time. But I think if anything else, it's for people to really look at, uh, you know, kids differently and just how we are these big spirits in these, in these bodies. And these bodies are not who we are. We just experience these bodies temporarily. These ages, these cultures, these identities are all temporary experience, but not the full totality of the entire soul. Mm. Yeah, that's a, such an important reminder. And I feel like a lot of the kids coming to the earth now are those old souls. You know, it just right. seems to be there's more of them coming to the planet right now. 
So, you know, I was recently being interviewed on another podcast and the theme was coming out of the psychic closet. So we spent the whole hour talking about, you know, just how hard that is to, to kind of say to your friends, like, yeah, I have seen angels and ghosts and <laughs> oh my, right? right. And just really put it all out there. And and at one point she said to me, well, are you fully out of the psychic closet? Because I think she was still kind of picking up on and how weird it is when you meet someone and, and tell them exactly what you do and what you write about. I wonder if that's different for a man. I, I don't know if that is true or not, but I just wonder what your experience was kind of saying, yes, I've had these mystical spiritual experiences. Yes, I do healings. And and yes, I communicate and connect with beings on the other side. How has that experience been for you, given that you have yeah. such a traditional day job? Yeah, I mean, well, as a kid, I grew up in quite a, a religious, dogmatic environment. So you could imagine the challenge where I had this experience and there was a God within that I was connecting to. And I was reared into a dogmatic environment that was focused on the outer God, not the inner God. And so I had a lot of opposition and just inner rage that I couldn't process. And so to have intuition would be something that is, you know, just totally uh, ostracized and, and judged. But Right. Combine that as a man, it's different. I mean, I remember being in preschool and feeling that my brain was totally different. And it was due to the traumatic, you know, TBI that I've had and the suffocation of the brain. And so my brain was a really clear filter between the other side. And I just felt a sliver of light going in and out of my brain, you know, in preschool and grade school that I would connect to. And this right now is fault is I understand to be a part of the pineal gland. Uh, but my brain was wide open and that filter is very clean. But with that came a lot of um, uh, Pandora's box of intuition and things that would just come to me. And I remember very little about my childhood other than these supernatural experiences, which are beyond this world and things that I hold on to. But I just remember looking at a classmate, seeing you know all these interdimensional communications that I was having, and then having this bewildered look you know, from that classmate, like, what are you on? And this was a kid still. And so it, that just kind of gave me the sense like, whoa, you know, I'm in my own little bubble here. And I felt very alone. And so that period of suffocation that I had in my NDE lasted until I was able to really make sense of this. And so as a young kid, and even in my teenage years, I would get a lot of these premonitions, see things, hear things, know things that would come to pass. And it was very annoying, honestly, I would just, I, I tried to have like a beach ball to bog it down. I was an athlete at the time, still am. And I was just just trying to like fit the mold and be quote unquote normal. And so I would just push this down. So it's a lot like Matt Damon in the movie Hereafter. Where I would have all these things that just like go away from me. Let me just shoot my basketball. Let me play tennis. And so I I was blessed to have a lot of mentors in my life, you know, who really in my family that I didn't see coming, you know, outs like kind of like extended family who tall who like who empowered me to understand what this was. And reading Sylvia Brown books and all these other things kind of gave me an identification for what this was and an universality of it. And what I come to understood from reading her books or John Edwards books, James Von Prague's books, this was not, you know, a female thing that, that males could have this. And you could be like a grounded guy, like a John Edward, who's got this like New York lawyer personality and just a regular, you know, kind of quick witted, sharp guy, confident guy. And, you know, or he could be as angelic and as, as, as feminine as possible. But I think it's important to look at our gender differently. And obviously, that's a whole other can of worms within the field that I work with. 
um, in terms of gender dysphoria, stuff like that. But what I would say is we all are intuitive. Intuitive is a language of the soul. And we have our bodies, we have our genders. But spiritually, I do believe that we are fully androgynistic. I think we could come off and experience ourselves within lifetimes as a male or female. But, you know, totality, I think, at our core is androgyny. We have both sides of, you know, masculine and feminine. And so I think it's important, you know, for men listening to understand that, you know, it's not just, you know, we have languages, women's intuition, and, you know, guys could be quite intuitive. You look at Tyler Henry right now, or, you know, just making the rounds. So it could be as intuitive as, as an energy, as it is for a male, as a female, as we all have, you know, these energies, you know, with us. Uh, it's just a matter of tapping into it and embracing it and redefining what we were taught, you know, because there's so much cultural myths that get in the way of our spiritual development. You know, we're taught as a guy, you know, have blue, play sports, this and girl that. And so I, I think really finding who you are is getting over the cultural myth and part of the gender uh, influence that we have growing up in that trajectory and just being yourself, your your unfiltered self, which is, which is a unique spirit, you know, not just uh, an imprint of, of cultural influence. So well said. I, I agree with all of that 100%. And I still remember to this day being upstairs doing homework and my dad going, Samantha, come downstairs. Larry King has James Von Prague on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was just the best. And I didn't yeah. really think about it till you just said it, but all the big ones to come out during that time were men. And yet we still kind of say, oh, woman's intuition or, oh, that that's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, John Edward, uh, you think of like, he's like an ultimate alpha male, like totally confident, you know, he's male, he's like, wearing like a black t-shirt, very, you know, New Yorky, you know, yeah. I think he's from Long Island as well. So, I mean, it's like having people like that does help, you know, like much like, you know, we were talking about Raymond Moody, who's got a medical degree and, you know, degree in philosophy, you know, all that could help to have the average person to gain credibility and to see that, oh, if they're doing it, yeah, it's not crazy. I could do it too. So I think the universe uses a lot of these people, different backgrounds to empower us and to say, hey, you know, if they're doing it, you know, so could you. You know, there's a lot of people who break ground in that regard. Um, but yeah, I know I, I have a lot of respect for a lot of the male psychics, but the first psychics were males. I mean, you look at Nostradamus, for instance, like, you know, and he talked about trying to hide who you are, like he had to speak in codes and quadrants and all that kind of stuff. And so now it's a lot more embraced. So males have emotions, males have feelings, males have intuition, much like you have a soul. You know, a soul is not just for a woman to have, males have souls too. Although sometimes it could feel like, depending on what your dating life would be, you know, one gender does not have one, one gender does. So that's a beautiful, beautiful way to the androgyny of finding that balance between the masculine and the feminine, because rather than making it divisive, if we can embrace that as individuals, my own personal belief is that that is going to lead us towards more unity as human beings, if we can see that we all carry both, and we have to acknowledge that. But my question is, all the, whenever I've spoken with someone who has had an NDE, right. they've always described the beauty, the colors, the richness, the, the, the just how vibrant the other side or, or stepping into that world was. How, how has that impacted you being in, in a carbon-based shell when you know that there's something that's so much 
more as far as vibrancy and richness? Yeah, I mean, to to be honest, you know, life has very little to do with actually what happened to you and most to do with how it's interpreted. And so there was moments in my life where sure, I was like going through you know, difficulty here and I was quite homesick and I miss it over there. And there are other moments when I was like, you know, no, you know, consciousness or reality is what you focus on. You know, that is your life. Your life becomes your focus. And so I use that as a framework where I just was able to understand that things here are just temporary and that's the reality. That's the ultimate reality. And that allowed a lot more resilience when I was going through temporary struggles and traumas, you know, just to remember, you know, that is real home and this is just an experience. I think a lot of people try to find God and they're looking thousands of miles away for God. And when you have an NDE, you understand God a little bit more. And so it's about the embodiment of God. And so I think really it's about beauty seeking. If you ask me, you know, how do we find heaven on earth is seeing things at their core, at their core beauty and looking beyond the surface of what is presented. And so in times I've tried that, I've tried to really connect energetically in a deep level. And when you come from that place, you're able to really see the world from your foundation. If you're coming from a world of anger, you'll see the world in anger. But if you're coming from a place of beauty, and that's your foundation, that's your lens, what I call the God lens, you're able to see things in a different way. So therefore, you're able to find the heaven, that divine spark and all that you encounter past the surface and some it takes a lot more downloading and seek, seeking to find, you know, others, it's right there on the surface. But you know, in reality, it has to do with one's connection. You know, people ask me what heaven, what hell is. I think heaven is just closer to that ultimate reality and hell is over here. And that's a further distance, you know, from the beauty and the divine spark that we all have within, you know, so it's a lot of overlaying factors that people are connected to that separate themselves from their, from their real core. But you're right. I think people need to remember who they are. That's so pivotal because for the needle to, to move, you know, our solutions can't come from the same problems that was originated from, you know, so for having a different foundation of our um, worldviews and what we connect to, you know, the needle and the solutions will be found at a greater rate. Thank you. That's beautifully said. Okay. So now I have to sprinkle a little rain into this lovely topic. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really, I love to study the concept of good and evil, right? Because it just absolutely fascinates me to the point. I was kind of embarrassed last night, my friends and I went to a true crime trivia and I completely dominated. Like I knew so many of the answers Uh yeah. and I think my friends are like, Samantha, but I have (laughs) always been fascinated by why people do bad things. I just don't, I don't understand it. You work as a past life regressionist. And so this is something I think about all the time. If we are souls, different ages, different wisdom, different experiences, and we do keep coming back. Well, I look at these overfilled, crowded prisons that we're dealing with here in America. And I think, what the hell? Like, are you just slow learners? Are you just brand new baby souls? Like, how do you reconcile that with all the beauty and glory you have experienced in your life and in your NDE? It's hard. I mean, I look at it as like a therapist where, you know, there's there's a study called the ACE study, which is based off of adversive childhood experiences. And, you know, you know, some people are more susceptible based on environmental circumstances, you know, for those lifestyles based off of the traumas that they experienced, you know, not having their basic needs met you know, homes that are, you know, divided. 
and it's not to say that there cannot be outliers to that, but there's statistics with 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 that lifestyle and what you grow up in. Um, I think it's more of a need for people when you're having all of these cumulative disadvantages, you know, growing up and around you, you know, to be able to have a, a foundation. You know, sadly, in a lot of these communities, the, the foundation isn't so much focused on what's inside of you. It's you know, it's a lot more religious, you know, kind of kind of based. And so it's a very disempowering thing. And so there's a lot of leaves and waters with certain, you know, consciousness of cultures and stuff like that. But I, I would say there's a saying that hurt people hurt people. And I look at it that when people cause pain, it's it's a reflection of the pain that they have within themselves regurgitated onto the world outside of them. That when people are inflicting pain, it's it's a, first of all, place of forgetfulness. You know, if you remembered the oneness that we are, you know, what kind of fool would hurt, you know, themselves? I mean, I guess someone who is more comfortable with sabotaging than healing, you know, more comfortable with the worldview that is going to come down to them that a world that's going to uplift them, but really has to do with with a lot of worldviews. And so our belief about life and God are intertwined. You know, if we have, in many ways, a very difficult life, sometimes we could view God in that same way. Or if we view God as a vengeful, dogmatic, judgmental God or, you know, stuff like that, we have conditions to our responses. So I think it's about having a more pure connection with our inner reality to inform our outer reality, because that's the true connection. I think, sadly, a lot of people are leaves and waters in the circumstances of their lives, and they experience a lot of pain. It's too much for them. They don't know what to do with it. So they act on it towards others, and they displace a lot of their unresolved feelings on an inner level and projected into the world. And so I think it's it's a sign of someone who has a lot of pain and has a lot of unresolved trauma and healing that they don't know how to process it. So, you know, people look at, let's say, substance use. And I say that's, you could look at it at one level, but to me, that's a lot of genetics and epigenetics, as well as a mental health disorder too, because most people have a lot of pain. They don't know how to medicate you know, it just beyond the genetic components. So I think to answer your question, I think people need a lot more community supports, mental health support, and to be able to process their pain so that they don't act on it towards other people, that they're able to kind of deal, um, you know, with it and and find some healing. But, it, and also it's a neurological component too. You know, people who uh, just inflict a lot of pains lack what's called mirror neurons, which is the center of empathy. And when you like experience a lot of pain or trauma, you tend to not have as much empathy, you know, as well as a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is all related to self-awareness. And when you experience trauma as well, your frontal lobes are also, you know, not as developed. So, you know, again, the adversive experiences within life could really have impactful components of the brain. The great news is obviously, you know, Harvard Medical School and sciences have come out with the adaptability and how uh, the brain is capable of changing past the age of the upper 20s, contrary, you know, to prior belief systems. So the brain, you know, has neuroplasticity and the capacity to change. So I think it's a lot of, I look at mental health as brain health. And when you're able to really heal your brain, you know, and find better connections and more of a flowing, uh, just uh, uh, structure of your brain, your life will, you know, then, you know, take shape. That book, What Happened to You, really does help, I think, with explaining a lot of what you're talking about. And I liked that book because it wasn't so much about 
oh, this is what trauma does to you. It was also, here's what you can do about it now. And it was talking about what you said, how the brain can actually heal. And it was mainly through meditation. And I'm sure there are some listeners going, all right, Samantha, enough with meditation, but it really does work. Yeah. I mean, I I wish we had a different word because it's almost kind of like a drum that's been beat too much. But again, the heart science is there very strongly. And I, I just say to my listeners, just, just try it, you know, stop focusing on the results. I know we're a very result related society and just focus on the process of it and just kind of see what it is that brings to you, you know, and the good news is there's so many different forms of meditation that could work. You know, I, mindfulness is a term that's used, but I just view mindfulness as viewing life as your meditation, you know, and just finding ways to connect to that sacredness and finding space between what happens to you and how we process it, you know, getting a lot more power, uh, empowerment of our emotional responses. But, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of getting a feel for it. I could talk until I'm this, until I'm blue in the face, but until getting into like a swimming pool, let's just say, you're not going to know how to swim, you know, so it's starting off at small dosage, but some of my clients who have, let's say, who have ADHD, who are very hyperactive, you know, they're not going to say, all right, I want you, you're at a hundred right now, let's go at zero. That's not going to work. I would say, let's do a paradoxical approach. You're feeling very hyper. Let's try to do paradox. Let's move. But when you move, be mindful, be aware what's going on, you know, kind of tune in and kind of like taking up snow globe and shaking it up a little bit. And eventually, you know, those particles in the brain and the body start to merge and, you know, slow down. One of your specialty areas is grief. So what would be some tips for empaths in grieving? Because I think when we feel things so deeply and so viscerally, what would be some ways that people, because grief is a hot topic right now, right. It, it's it's a, a, a buzzword. And I think rightfully so on a an individual level of people are going through a lot of, of personal situations, but also uh, as a collective, there's a lot of grief. So could you address that a little bit, please? Yeah, you know, it's a good, I, I look at grief in some ways similarly to a near-death experience, you know, because for instance, a near-death experience, you have the whole world of your, you know, worldview just completely rocked, right? You know, it's like you're living a certain way and all of a sudden that foundation is completely yanked. And then you have this experience with things that maybe you didn't think about or process before and you're able to look at it in a new way. And when grief happens, which obviously, you know, is you can be a loss of a loved one, but it has to do with any prominent ending of your life. You know, so all of a sudden, it it allows someone to kind of get out of cruise control of your life and to look at life in a new sense and to kind of look at the things that we may have not focused on in this life with with a new way. And so, I think with with grief as well as anything within mental health, it's important to find a balance with what I call the wise mind, you know, and the emotional mind. You know, the emotional mind is sometimes we get too involved in grief, we get too into our feelings, and we're not aware of what's happening. And so the wise mind has the capacity to combine intellect as well as uh, wisdom of what you're going through. And so I think it's important for people to have a psychoeducation on grief. You know, obviously, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who studied near-death experiences, you know, you know, extensively as well. She was a real grandmother of grief, if you will, and she was a psychiatrist and she developed her own stages of grief, which now you know, has been evolved, you know, it's, they're finding the, the non, there's the non-linearity of some of those stages are significant that 
people could vacillate and go through different stages. But essentially, what's important is, you know, to be able to surrender to the feelings and understanding that the way out is through, uh, which is, you know, a big contradiction to our culture, which is about the bypassing of situations. And it's about the trendiness of things. It's on to the next thing, the next thing. So I think it's, it's hard in a way for our societal trajectory, because, you know, we want to just get to the next thing. And grief doesn't work that way. Grief does not have a unique timetable for people. It works in its own way. And so I think it's important for people to validate their feelings, be aware of their feelings, allow themselves to feel, but understand that our, that our feelings leads to our healings, be able to speak to the right people about it. Cause you know, people could use grief against you as you've seen through, you know, a lot of these people with neon light sounds as uh, psychics and stuff like that, or, you know, manipulation. So you want to be careful with who you discuss your deepest feelings with, because some people they'll just kind of judge you or talk over you. And I think when someone's grieving, it's just, it's just a matter of being heard. You know, I, I once had a client and they came into the session. I didn't say one word when they were grieving. And they said, that was the best session I've ever had. And it's like, as a therapist, you're taught to do all these things, stuff like that. But sometimes it's just getting out of your own way and just allowing the person to have a safe and comfortable place to talk about their feelings is exactly what's needed. You know, not and not to make promises to people saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Do it. Focus on action, not on talk. You know, show up at their house, just drop off stuff. Don't say, what could I do to help you? I mean, geez, bring the person back, right? You know, that, but that's, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, don't make all these promises because that, it does not work. So I think people on both sides of grief need to have more education on the do's and don'ts. But I think it's important for people to just allow themselves to be their raw selves and to feel exactly what they're feeling. And But also that it's a river. You know, it could transform tragedy into meaning at a certain point. And I think once you're able to really surrender to the river of grief, there is a potential uh, component of meaning that people will find. And I also find people with grief open themselves up to now studying the afterlife and becoming like intuitive. So it's amazing what grief could crack open within time, that it's not all just stigmatized and negative and bad, you know, that short term, yes, it could be quite turbulent, but long term, it could be quite transformative, you know, if it's handled in the high road in the right way. So there's all these things that you're doing to grow your spirit and help others to to grow and connect within to theirs. I'm just wondering, what is what modality or what practice do you do on a daily or weekly basis that helps you feel the most in tune with that God force you connected with when you were three? Honestly, it's, um, you know, it's really tapping into the vagus nerve of my brain. And so I think through exercise and through music that really, everyone has their own unique engine, but for me, it's going on those long runs. Like I'm an athlete, I'm a runner. I need those long runs. And when I do it, I'm able to really hear a lot of spirit and just connect to it. So that's like my Aries moon and Aries rising. I need to be active and moving to really feel it. That's my fire energy. So for me, it's it's running, it's moving. Uh, but I just got like a, a boombox speaker and in my new place. And I just, the highlight of my day is, you know, blasting some Jack Johnson or James Taylor or whatever it is. And for me, that's heaven on earth to me or some meditation music for my friend, Stephen Halpern. You know, just for me, music is a way that I connect, you know, in movement. Um, but it's also on gratitude. I, I find like, like I said, like your attitude has everything to do with your life. And so 
when you have a practice of intentional gratitude and focusing on, you know, all the things that you feel blessed by and all the people along your path, you know, to evaluate that, not just, you know, some people wait to the end until they're in uh, about to die to kind of like evaluate the life that they live. And for me, I don't take anything for granted as I, you know, really recognize in my NDE that, you know, this life could be taken from us in just a second. We, we just don't know uh, when our when our time will come. So, for myself, it's about, yes, I go through my daily struggles. I work a very stressful job. I see a lot of pain and service in my life. But again, it's just learning how to breathe that out, let that go, and you know, finding ways to reset and pivot to the ultimate reality and beauty seeking and and gratitude um, practice. it's It's really about, you know, people ask, what is God? And you know, my biggest teacher in my life is the late Dr. Wayne Dyer, who I connect to on my own level. Uh, you know, throughout throughout his passing, but Wayne was once asked, like, what is God? And Wayne would say, God is enthusiasm, or spirit is found enthusiasm. And he would say, what does that mean? And he broke it down. The word enthusiasm has that word entheos, which means in the Greek language, the divine within. And so when you find the things that you love, whatever that is, whether that's watching, you know, football, whether that's, you know, going to the park, you know, the things that you're inspired by, that's your connection to the divinity. And so I think it's important to understand that yes yeah, spirituality you could go to the reiki practitioners you could do all the the chakra signs you could do all the chants and those are great things but it's not limited to just burning incense and sage and essential oils i think spirituality has almost become a religion in itself of the things the, confusing the tools that we do with the practice of it i think spirituality is really tuning into your love of life and the depth of your experiences in the moments that you have here, I think the most spiritual thing you could do is have a deepened experience in life itself and the one that you're living. That's fantastic. And I never really thought about that. Spirituality is becoming a religion in itself with the tools. That's so true. Yeah. It's like, you know, and, and all these things are great, but they, there's just an association with, you know, with all these things that we do and stuff like that. So it's, it's really about connecting to your own being. If chanting a thousand times works for you, do it. But don't think that the chanting itself is a spiritual act. What you had in you was always there, you know? So it's it's just tapping into what was always there, not confusing all those tools and pathways to that as what spirituality is. Those are just means to an end, you know, and tools to open up what was always invoked inside of you. That's a, a really, really good point because when Samantha and I have taught different classes, we've always really let anybody can do anyone can be intuitive anyone can connect with spirit but you have to find the way that it works best for you and that's what you're saying which is really really incredible because i think people are looking for a quick fix or the the quick open that door for me and how do i get there when really it's finding how am I wired and how do I connect? And for you, if you do it through running, someone else may do it through walking through the woods. Someone else may do it through yoga. Nothing is better than the other if it gets you to the same place, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And and just to know your engine. I think you know, mm. one of the last points I want to make is to stop seeing life outside of yourself. We see all the time that we are one. And so when people look at the stars, they'll you know, focus on that great teacher, they'll start to say, oh, these things are great, but they're separate from myself. They're outside myself. I don't have that beauty in myself. And so I think what's important is for people to stop seeing greatness and beauty as outside yourself, but just a reflection of what's there. And that's why you're such in such all of these things, because these things are the reminder 
at the expansiveness and beauty that you have inside of you. So I think it's important, you know, for people to just be able to tune in and tap into what they see outside themselves is just a reflection of what they already have, you know, and so every great teacher will empower the student and to say, you know, what I'm teaching you have in you, you know, and you uh, could have that. So I think people, it's starting to see greatness in themselves too, in their own unique way. So you have these two fantastic books. You've got some cool events coming up. Uh, your website is Jacob L. Cooper, by the way, guys. I'll put that in our, sh- in our show notes and on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, but tell people again where you, they can see you because you have a pretty cool event coming up in November for all our listeners up north. And I'd yep. love to know if you're working on a new book. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, you know, so you know, people could find me. I have clients from here to Australia that I work with. And so we do in-person services. I'm here on Long Island. I uh, have uh, a beautiful office right here directly on the water, which uh, I love. Um, it's always a dream of mine to live on the water, and the dream has come the last couple months. So uh, people come, and they find peace here, or they connect to me remotely, and I do a lot of different sessions. And, yeah, we have a, a, an event with a good friend of mine, Jeff, you know, international second medium Jeffrey Wands, who's been on the Mari Povich show several, t- several times, written, you know, a lot of great books as well, including Another Door Opens, as well as many other books and The Psychic in You as well, which you know, is a great book too. And a lot of congruency with how everyone has a soul and everyone has intuition. Uh, and uh, th- that GPS of our lives is important to tap into. So that's going to be, I believe it's November 5th. It's on a, it's on a, um, Jesus, on a Saturday. It's going to be in Smithtown, New York at the Holistic Center for Soulful Living which has hosted the likes of, you know, Laura Lynn Jackson, Marianne Williamson, uh, to name a few. I know I've done a lot of workshops there and it's just a great place uh, out, out in Suffolk County, Long Island. So Jeff and I are going to be doing an event and, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of events too with the Forever Family Foundation coming up, which, you know, is a, you know, was featured on Netflix's Surviving Death, you know, and I think uh, one of the episodes um, as well as, you know, coming up, I'm doing the Helping Parents Heal Conference that's going to be in Phoenix, Arizona and in August. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. The heat, not as much. I mean, Phoenix in August, it's going to be challenging, but but I go to Arizona all the time. That's like a second home of mine. So I lived there in the summer before, so I, I could handle it. But yeah, you know, and then I'm working with uh, different people internationally to be doing some, you know, workshops and stuff like that. It's always a dream of mine to just expand and get out of, you know, the United States and to do stuff, you know, beyond, you know, North America. So yeah, we'll see what, what comes. Regarding, you know, the books, you could find them on Amazon. They're both available on Amazon. I think the third book is, there's a wood burning. You know, I'm only 33 years old. So if I say I've written two books and I stopped at 32 years old, I, I wouldn't feel very good about that. I have a, hopefully a long life to live and many books, but again, it has to, I think I want viewers to remind themselves it's important to not try to force things and just let things come to you you know much like this life is like you know we all come from this eternal ocean we're a wave of expression we go to the shoreline and we come back we unfold just as we are and so you know we're just all pure nature we just unfold as we were intended as we're supposed to be and it's just important to be in tune with our souls and our higher selves and the path that was laid out before us and so I hope that that could take place where, where a third book could happen. And uh, I'm sure it's will, but um, I think a lot of the books really that I'll be writing is very much empowerment books. Uh, but, you know, maybe I'll, I'll venture into the field more so of mental health, more or hypnosis. We'll see. So 
that's all it's on the that's on the works and your podcast where can people find that anywhere yeah. the wisdom jacob's ladder youtube spotify i believe itunes and several other you know major platforms and you know i give my own kind of talks and you know have you know weekly uh guests on so that's that's a fun podcast and people seem to to get a lot out of it so yeah you know it's just it's fun to create community it's fun to you know just connect to new people and uh it's just it's just about creating new energy you know if you're around a body of water that's stale or stagnant no one likes to be around that but if you're around you know a river with the flow and stuff like that you you feel good and so people are the same way you want to be with, with someone who is constantly finding something new try you know continuously expanding you know, every day is a new day and that's the way to live life is just to keep things fresh keep things current and waking up better than when you went to sleep that night before that's that's the name of the game that's beautiful i only listened to a true crime podcast this week preparing for my trivia night last night right so i haven't heard the the lorna lorna is it lorna, lorna brine or lorna burn i thought well it's funny because i thought it was burn because I, I i thought it was brine at first me too because it, i'm a little dyslexic she is too i found out like she publicly you know discussed that so which is interesting but but it's burn and she's based in ireland uh we had yeah, i've read and, i've read her books i'm a huge fan of hers yeah. and uh so i can't wait to listen now i need to i need to cleanse my brain of my week of true crime podcast no, no. start with the the lorna interview because i think she's she's just fabulous yeah, I mean, that may be your planetary forces in Scorpio. I don't know if there's any Scorpio parts, but it's just the investigatory part. I think if you're interested in you know, the nature of reality and you're tuned in, it's just it it just doesn't make sense as to how people act the way that they do on the negative way, you know, in the worst way. And so I just I never just, get it because it feels so good to be nice, you know, right. Like if I hold the door open for a mom pushing a stroller and she's like, oh, thank you. I get a bigger high than she does from not having to hold the door open with right. a stroller. Like it just feels so good. And so when people are rude and mean, I, I don't know, every time yeah. I'm shocked by it. So I, I always feel like I have to investigate and explore and understand it. But that's neither here nor there. Sorry, listeners, yeah. I digress. Well, you know, I, I just look at it as someone with a very damaged brain, really. You know, And they have their brains and they do a lot of brain scans and some of these, you know, serial killer types and their brains are just incredibly different and damaged than what we are. And again, it's making mental health tangible. That's why I bring up the brain. If you're looking at someone who's you know, dying of a disorder, you could be like, wow, that's a very damaged person physically, stuff like that. And so I think with, when it comes to antisocial personalities, I know we call them, you know, psychopaths or, or, or sociopaths. And Really, that could be anyone with a psychological pathology or social pathology. The real term is antisocial personality, you know, for a lot of these people. And they just lack a lot, a lot of mirror neurons, empathy, awareness, and they just kind of get off on these gruesome things. It's just uh, it's hard to find sanity in the insanity is what I'll say. And it is. It's very complex. It's not just the brain. It's not just the environment. You know, I think it's it's normal for the human part to just wonder why. I mean, I come from a family that was in the Holocaust and every day I'm like, how did this happen? You had some of the most educated people in modern day time with, you know, graduate degrees, stuff like that. And they just became these complete monsters, you know. And so it's just kind of wonder, like, how that happened. And you're seeing today, you know, droplets of that and just wondering, like, how is this happening? Where people who have employed jobs and they have work, they could be so filled with vitriol hatred and stuff like that but then know how to play the game and you know they're just 
yeah, it's, they know how to charm, but they do that to just kind of manipulate and get their way to what, you know, so it's, it's, it's bizarre. But anyway, we'll step in the light and remind ourselves that all things that are separate from the light, how the time frame light will transcend everything and death, as we know, is a fiction and the life that we live is temporary and life goes beyond just this body and this life. And it's just an experience, but we pray for souls to come back to their truth and to discern, you know, the separation of it. Beautifully said. Thank you for sharing your insights and your viewpoint. And you make it very, my background's in special education and neurodivergence and, and brain chemistry. So a lot of the things that you've been talking about, I'm thinking about children or, or young adults that I worked with in the past who I think it's important to always remember that there is that neuroplasticity and resiliency that people can change, people can grow and evolve. And I think that's part of where we are right now is in this place of growth and evolution. And your work is so paramount in this. So thank you. Well, thank you, Denise. I appreciate it. Thank you for the work that you've done. I know that's my background. My father started a special needs school. And so when kids were just hanging out playing sports on Sundays, I, you know, from a young age, I was volunteering every Sunday morning, you know, to help give programming to a lot of, you know, kids of the, you know, who are in the special needs population, who had developmental disabilities and people who just weren't included in the communities and to give them a community uh, that embraced them. So thank you for the work that you did, did as well. Yes. And, and it's, it's a magical community, isn't it? Oh yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. You know, and, the world should be just as kind and tuned in as, as people of that population, you know. 100%. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Jacob. And again, everyone, check out his website, jacoblcooper.com, and his podcast, Wisdom of Jacob's Ladder. I'll post all that in the show notes again. And please remember, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care.